You are now listening to the Fat Fix Podcast with David Flowers, a show talking about all things fat loss and health for the general population. Helping people understand why they are in the position they're in right now, rather than just focusing on what they need to do. Your no-nonsense personal trainer friend that you can have access to in your pocket whenever you need some help, guidance or just to kick up the arse. Hello and welcome to the Fat Fix podcast for episode number 17. This week I was joined by Dr. Gabrielle Fundaro, who is a Renaissance Periodization Coach, an ISSN Certified Sports Nutritionist and ACE Certified Health Coach. She also holds a PhD in Human Nutrition, Foods and Exercise. In this episode, we discuss the ever so popular topic of late, which is gut health. This is quite a complex topic, but Gabrielle gave a solid account of what it is in layman's terms, not to mention she certainly cleared up the many assumptions and myths that surround this area. I really enjoyed this chat with Gabrielle and I hope you do too. So without further ado, That Gut Feeling featuring Dr. Gabrielle Fundaro. Hey David. How's it going? Good, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. First of all, thank you ever so much for coming on to the Fat Fix podcast today. Oh, thank you for the invitation. No worries, I really appreciate your time. Uh, I know that you're really busy. I know that you're currently in the UK, right? Yep, that's right, out in Sheffield. Yeah, enjoying it so far? Oh yeah, I love it. It's been really fun to walk around and explore. It's a mix of just these beautiful old buildings and churches and just interesting people and interesting food. It's really fun. So you you came over here for a seminar over in London, didn't you? Was it the European powerlifting seminar, was it? Uh Uh-huh. Yep. The EPC. I was there um, with Ben Gar and a host of awesome folks. Um, uh, RP Dr. Mike was there, Mike Tuscher, um, Eric Helms, Jordan Feigenbaum, Brett Gibbs. That was, I think that was all of us. <laughs> uh, so was you was you covering covering what we're going to be speaking about today? Was you with with, with the guys down there? Um, actually, it was a little bit of a different talk than what I usually do. So most of the time, I'm talking about gut health, but um, this time was actually on uh, nutrition and supplementation for performance and weight modification. So it was more geared toward. Um, nutrition for performance and then both long and short-term weight change for um, weight class sports. Ah, I bet that was pretty interesting. I didn't actually know that you were, you guys was in London. It wasn't until I just seen someone share something on Instagram. I would have definitely been keen to come down to London for that one. Oh, man. Well, we are um, – uh, Mike and I are coming back with Mel and James. We're going to be in Dublin in October, so – uh, we'll be back in the area then. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Yeah. That sounds sounds like it could be a shout. Um, we're over in um, Edinburgh for the Broad oh. Scornfield Hypertrophy um, oh. seminar in October as well, so which should be cool. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, um, I plan to actually stay in the area for a couple weeks, so I'll pop over to you guys and come say hi. Yeah, definitely. So <laughs> just before we get cracking into today's podcast, Gabrielle, would you just mind giving the listeners a little bit of a – rundown on, on yourself and what you're doing, just a bit of a background? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I am Dr. Gabrielle Fundero, I'm online known as Vitamin PhD. 
I am a sport nutritionist and I do consultations for both uh, sport nutrition and weight management. And then I also uh, run Vitamin PhD Nutrition, which is my video coaching platform for folks who have uh, issues with digestive health and digestive comfort, as well as folks who don't necessarily want to use, you know, specific macros or a template, but they still want to have uh, guidance in kind of fostering lifelong weight management habits. Yeah, I thought that would be, um, the, well, one of the main reasons why I got you onto the show, um, Gabrielle, is because you are considered an expert in this field. And in a world of confusion, especially in the fitness industry, <laughs> it's, re it's really, it's good to get someone on like yourself to discuss something which is quite a complex topic. I'm sure you'll agree, gut health and it's something that a lot of people are asking about now and it's in a lot of mainstream media mm. about the gut. But how would you define it? What actually is gut health? Um, well, you know, it's so funny. I don't even like to say that I'm an expert in gut health because we know so little um, compared to what we don't know that I don't think anyone's truly an expert yet. <laughs> so, <laughs> that makes me feel so much better. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I usually, um, I, I, you know, people have said like gut health communicator or professional or gut health scientist. Um, so when we talk about gut health, uh, I think it's important to point out that it's really almost, almost a meaningless term. It's sort of like we know it when we see it. So usually, I think when people are talking about gut health, many times they're referring to just a, an overall kind of lack of bloating and gas and you know comfortable bowel movements that they feel that their food is digesting comfortably and passing from one end to the other having been processed assimilated nutrients extracted and then it comes out in you know uh, a comfortable mass in a bowel movement um, but that's actually a little bit different from the gut microbiome itself and I think those terms kind of get conflated and people assume that perhaps there's something wrong with their microbiome or all of the microorganisms living in the gut um, if they're not having comfortable digestion. Or if they are having comfortable digestion, that that means that the microbes are doing really well. And um, they're, they're two separate issues. Obviously, they're related. Um, but I just think it's kind of important to point that out, that it, there, um, you know, there's some overlap, but there are plenty of things that you know, we can't necessarily link one to the other. And when people say something like um, a, a healthy gut, there's no profile of a healthy gut when we're trying to use the microbiome to define what makes a healthy gut. So that means we can't determine um, a specific ratio of microbes to one another that equal healthy gut. Because healthy controls around the world, even though they're all considered to be healthy individuals, their guts look different. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting point to make. It's a, a kind of in this like current day and age now, you, you're getting a lot of people becoming a little bit kind of paranoid with certain things. So mm. if someone does have like a, a, a leaky gut or they go to the bathroom, they're automatically linking that like there's something potentially really, really wrong with them. And it's good to kind of, like you said, separate the two things on the microbiome and gut health rather than just necessarily thinking, oh, I've got a really bad gut. Right, exactly, because they're trying to kind of, 
you know, we, we've used um, gut health or, or dysbiosis, which is sort of the opposite. So all, you know, people consider that to be an unhealthy gut. It's a, an unfavorable ratio of species to one another um, and kind of use that as a reason for all sorts of things like why they can't lose weight or why they're not sleeping well or why they have acne. Um, and we just don't know enough. We don't have enough causative evidence to be able to say that that's actually the case. Yeah, you're getting a lot of that as well, aren't you? People, people being diagnosed with something when, they, mm. like you said, we don't know enough about it to actually just automatically presume, oh, it should go. And I do think it's become a little bit of a trend, hasn't it, within the fitness industry right now with the old gut health. It's, it's become a trend for people who aren't qualified in the area mm. delving deep into it, which is pretty scary, right, from a professional like yourself to be hearing. Yeah, what I find is that it quite often is a person who has no background at all in any of the research, but they might have a, a disease or they have uncomfortable digestion and or they have an autoimmune disease or they have some malady that they claim to have cured or managed through fixing their gut. And it's like, they don't really know anything about it, but they were able to, by chance, improve their own symptoms. And so then they provide guidance to other people um, without having the ability to really evaluate the literature. Because just the, the ability to just read a research article and disseminate that information is not the same thing as effective science communication. Because you have to be able to evaluate the quality of that evidence and measure it against the whole breadth and depth of the rest of the field. And so I think that's, that's part of the problem is like those folks are really vocal and they seem like they can, you know, relate and like they're on the level with people who are having GI issues. And that speaks to people more than the actual practitioners who are doing the research um, or are in the medical field. And those people tend not to speak in such strong absolutes. You know, they're not willing to attribute a person's issue to just the gut because they know that we're not really in that place yet. Yeah, it's really nice for to hear that coming from someone like yourself because I'll be honest, as a personal trainer as well, uh, especially whether it was six months or a year ago when, when like, when I, like I said, this gut health kind of phenomenon is coming out more in the industry and there is more of it being kind of spoken about now, which is obviously great and it's important. But I, I was found myself getting a little bit lost in it as well out and as, a, as a trainer. So I wonder how the general population must feel if Oof. even I was. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, even trying to read some of the research articles, um, you know, you don't get nice graphs. You don't get like, you know, like line graphs or bar charts you end up with like PCOA plots that just look like weird lines and circles pointing in all different directions. And so it's really difficult to interpret the data. And I mean, there are um, plenty of figures that I've seen, you know, first off and had to go look at how to interpret them. So it's like, you have to teach yourself, um, you know, how to, how to interpret metagenomic data. And that alone is really challenging. But, you know, you, you just have to be careful with that and not just take every paper at face value. You have to apply context and nuance. And um, I think that's kind of what's lacking right now. Yeah, 100%. Um, I think 
going off what you've just said now, let, we'll, it'll be great to now delve deep into the, the real truth about gut health and what it actually, what people can do to improve it and what are the telltale signs that people come to you with or uh, stories that you've heard of with clients. Because I'm sure a lot of my listeners now will be thinking, how do I know if I have poor gut health and what mm-hmm. can I actually do about it? Yeah. So what are the, some of the telltale signs of poor gut health that you see, Gabrielle? Um, well, I would say, you know, I, I wouldn't, um, I would just caution against saying like necessarily poor gut health, um, just because that is a really malleable definition. So in terms of what I commonly see in individuals, um, really, it's most commonly something that they're just eating, something in their habitual diet that contains some carbohydrate that they're not able to digest very well. And as humans, there are some carbohydrates that we just have not evolved to digest. So to digest something, we have to break the chemical bonds between the smallest constituent parts of that compound. So if we don't form the enzymes to break those chemical bonds, then we rely on the bacteria to do it for us. And when the bacteria do that for us, sometimes they might produce gases. And the gases can then accumulate in our intestinal tract and sometimes cause bloating and distension. And when they come out, they can smell bad. Um, Sometimes they uh, will produce short-chain fatty acids, and that can change the acidity level in the gut. That's usually considered to be a good thing, but of course, in any extreme, it could potentially be a bad thing. And so if we have big changes in the pH and if we have changes in the ratio of gas production, sometimes that can lead to uh, diarrhea. Sometimes it could lead to constipation. Um, So the bacteria themselves can play an important role in the production of gases and short-chain fatty acids. And um, they themselves make up some of the uh, kind of a majority of the mass of our fecal matter. So it makes sense there that, okay, if we have, you know, the the bacteria are interacting with our foods, they could potentially impact how bloated we feel or the the comfort of our bowel movements. Now, on the other hand, there may be something anatomically um, going on with the gastrointestinal tract. So it it may look normal. Um, or there may be some anatomical features there, a disease present. There could be something wrong with the physiology. So the form of the gastrointestinal tract is normal, but it's not contracting like it should. And in that case, it's not necessarily anything to do with the gut bacteria or the microbiome. It's just that the function of the GI tract isn't, uh, isn't uh, acting properly. So it's, it's dysfunctional not contracting properly and not moving food uh, through comfortably. So when we talk about gut health or poor gut health, there's so many different factors that need to be taken into consideration. And so I usually recommend, you know, that people visit their gastroenterologist to have some valid testing done to look at the anatomy and physiology of the gut. That doesn't mean that they're actually being able to test the microbiome. So there are tests that we can use to Um, look at the genetic material of of the microbiome. So we get a a fecal sample in most cases, and we look at the genetic material there. And just like barcodes, we can then identify uh, what organisms might be present. But there are huge limitations and biases in using that sort of test 
and it doesn't really give us a great idea about how those microbes are interacting with each other. So those aren't usually super helpful. And I'm very much um, kind of a minimalist and I, I like to start with the low hanging fruit. So my first step is usually just to look at a person's habitual diet and identify the foods that are most commonly going to cause GI distress. And it's usually one of those fermentable carbohydrates that the bacteria use and can form gas and that causes some GI upset. So you, like you say, usually start from somebody's diet before you even look any deeper into getting any tests done or anything like that with an individual. Yeah, as long as they have a clean bill of health from their gastroenterologist. So that's usually my first step is visit a gastroenterologist. If that's all clear, yeah. now we're going to look at your diet. If there are obvious things there that are going to be very gas producing, those are the things that we want to address first. We also want to look at other lifestyle factors. You know, are you physically active? Are you managing stress? Are you managing sleep? Because those things have been shown to at least affect the motility of the gut or the movement of the gastrointestinal tract um, and can certainly impact things like appetite, um, you know, so that could potentially modify a person's ability to regulate their food intake and make weight management much, much more difficult. Um, so, you know, those are the things, and it's not super sexy, but those are the basics that we really have to start with before we start trying to get, you know, super fancy with supplements and things like that. Cause most of those are, um, you know, if they're supported by evidence, it's usually very weak evidence and the impact is going to be so, so small. So that's the other thing to consider is that when we look at the variability um, or the diversity in a person's gut, we looked at all the species that are present and we compare those to a different person. The greatest factor in variability is just being a different person. So even our diet and physical activity habits only account for about one third of the organisms that are present. Um, and then about another third is just because we're human. And then the remaining third, we're not really sure what it is. <laughs> so we, we have to be very conservative about the claims that we're making about, you know, healing the gut, fixing the gut, um, remodeling the microbiome, whatever it may be. There's just not evidence that we're really doing it. And what's most likely happening is just that through these diet and lifestyle modifications, we're just sort of removing foods that cause GI upset, and, um, you know, potentially improving GI motility, so better clear, uh, you know, maybe less production of gas, better clearance of the fecal matter, and then people feel a lot better. And I don't make claims about fixing or healing or, you know, remodeling the microbiome. Can it happen? Can, can we actually change it? Certainly, through dietary interventions, we can to some extent. Um, and so diet, you know, is, is a huge factor and, and something that I really promote. But, you know, diet in itself is going to cause so many other beneficial changes that we can't say it's just based on changes to the microbiome. Yeah, well, when you mentioned um, earlier, Gabrielle, about the appetite and things like that, talking about the complications in terms of physiologically, I think that would be a good point to touch on when you mentioned like mm. appetite, because you, you're hearing a lot of um, things about the gut now when people say things like you need to sort your gut out. Uh, that's the reason you're not not losing weight. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you, you're getting a lot of people who are probably thinking, oh, shit, I can't lose weight because of my poor gut. However, it's 
a contributing factor to the appetite, which is obviously a big factor in terms of calories and energy balance. So I think that's kind of where we we need to kind of teach people a little bit more rather than just giving bold statements like that. Like, why is the gut causing people to potentially eat more or eat less? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I always like to ask that question when people say, oh, you know, when I fixed my gut, X, Y, and Z got better. And then I have to ask, well, how did you know it was broken? And then how did you know it was fixed? Because in most cases, people aren't actually measuring anything. They're just making changes to their diet that seem, um, you know, a good for the gut. And then these, these health indices or these metrics improve. And it could be through no change to the gut. I mean, there are plenty of studies that show that even, you know, with dietary intervention, um, there are really minimal changes to the overall shape of the microbiome. And it really comes down to differences in methodologies and sort of how deep we're sequencing the microbiome, like with what resolution we're looking at those microbes. So when we look at, you know, the things that uh, influence appetite control, um, there's some evidence that, yes, the microbiome does play a role in appetite regulation um, and also even in energy harvesting. So there's a greater potential to extract energy or calories from the diet um, depending on the profile of your microbiome. That being said, that doesn't make an energy deficit ineffective. It just means that you might need to eat maybe one or 200 calories less than the person next to you who, you know, all other variables controlled, they may have a less capable energy harvesting capacity in their gut. Um, but really, the, the best evidence that we have shows that it's, you know, maybe about six to 10% additional energy harvesting. Um, you know, definitely more studies need to be done to look into that and get a be- better idea of what that percentage might actually be. We know that the microbiome can shape our response to various carbohydrates. But again, as long as we're not, and hopefully, you know, not subscribing to the, the you know, insulin theory of, uh, of, of, of obesity, and, you know, we know that it's not hormones, that even if you have a little bit more of an insulin response to a meal, that won't preclude you from losing fat either if you're in an energy deficit. But of course, we have to realize that some individuals have a harder time maintaining an energy deficit. So that's where the real challenge lies. It's not, you know, like once we realize, once we know, okay, you have to have an energy deficit, well, now how do I attain that? Um, that's where it becomes a little bit more challenging because if you are stressed and you're sleep deprived, you're going to have a much greater appetite and it's going to be much harder for you to deal with the hunger that intrinsically comes with being in an energy deficit. So I think that's where kind of mindset comes in and like expecting the hunger and kind of hanging out with it because it's going to happen if you're in an energy deficit and realizing that fat loss may be simple, but it's not easy and it takes a long time. Um, and so, you know, choosing foods that are high volume but low in, in calories or foods that aren't super tasty, that can help to regulate your appetite. And we really don't have to do anything to the gut. <laughs> you know, it just so happens that those foods are usually higher in fiber. And that's probably really good for the bacteria there because that's what they want to metabolize. Yeah, so it, it's, I like 
my clients and people that I work with, obviously we're speaking about the energy deficit. And if we look at all the contributing factors to that, like you mentioned before, you mentioned like sleep. So if we're controlling our sleep, the likelihood is our potential for cravings are going to be subsided a little bit. If we are sleep deprived, obviously we're going to be craving more food. For instance, if we are mm -hmm. staying up late at night watching films, we're not going to eat a bowl of broccoli. We're going to reach for the we're going to reach for a pizza and things like that. And when you're speaking about the gut as well, if we can kind of look to address that through, like you said, sorting out your diet, increasing your fiber, that's going to have a knock-on effect to improving this gut that can ultimately, as all of these things can, have an impact on that energy balance because we're looking at why people are potentially in this energy surplus and gaining weight. If we can sort out potential looking into the gut a little bit more as in if they are having any distress there if we can look into the sleep if we can look into the stress all them things are going to help people adhere more to creating that energy deficit to actually lose weight because like you said it is a lot harder than people make out to be but it's, it's understanding these things that we can do to help make it easier without the backlash of physiologically everything going against us for the way that we are with our own health yeah, exactly. We just have to realize that, you know, we can't, once we take ownership of, you know, our responsibility to have to uh, attain and then maintain that energy deficit for a period of time to lose fat, then it's actually very empowering, I think. And I've had plenty of people and women especially who are questioning, you know, whether they can lose weight because they might be menopausal or they have PCOS. And at that point, I think that... Might be a disservice by saying, Oh, it's your hormones. Oh, it's your gut health. You have to fix this first before anything else can happen. And no, that's really not the case. The hormones are not going to preclude you from losing weight. Of course, if you have something like hypothyroidism, um, it's going to be almost impossible to sustain yourself on the you know low calories you'd need to be in an energy deficit. Once you're medicated, um, your thyroid uh, hormone levels are within a normal range. You'll function like a, an individual who does not have hypothyroidism. And, um, you know, PCOS is another one that you're not precluded from losing weight. You may have some insulin resistance there, but one of the best things that you can do to combat that is to maintain, you know, lower body fat levels. So it's, it's sort of we're putting uh, you know, the chicken before the egg saying like, oh, it's the hormones. And really it's excess body fat that causes hormonal dysregulation in many cases. That's where we see the formation of insulin resistance. It could be a potentially protective mechanism. So our cells become insulin resistant so that they don't take up any more glucose because in an excess of glucose, it's going to be stored as fat. And fat and in, in our muscle cells, or in our fat cells, once they become really large, can cause some inflammation. So it kind of should be going in the other direction of let's look at how we can change your lifestyle to support a healthy body weight and healthy uh, overall physiology. And then, you know, go in that direction rather than saying, oh, here's supplements to fix your hormones. <laughs> yeah, people seem to separate. Um, I find energy balance and health, they put them at the opposite end of the spectrum. And it, it's kind of, you're getting this argument, aren't you, in the industry, like you said, people talking about people's hormones, and then you've got other people saying it's nothing to do with them. It's kind of like looking at 
a common sense approach, meeting in the middle. If someone has got gut distress, looking into how we can potentially make that better. Yes. And then obviously with everything else, as a byproduct of that, as getting the body in a healthier position, as a byproduct, a person and an individual will have potentially more control over the caloric intake and lack of our movement that they currently might not be doing because of energy levels and simply just do you feel good and right. I think a lot of people miss the boat with that it's kind of a common sense approach it's if we can get people to just feel good a little bit better there shouldn't be a separation between health and what actually is required for fat loss should be if we do get a person healthier by sorting out all these factors that we spoke about today especially as well as the gut then a person's more likely to want to do the things that's going to put them in that negative energy balance to actually lose weight in the first place. Exactly. I mean, that's part of, um, you know, I, I coach in many different ways. And one of the most intensive um, uh, approaches that I have with individuals who have, you know, like long-term GI distress and, um, you know, also are struggling with weight management is that we first look at, okay, how do we get you to a place where you are comfortable, you know, you're having comfortable digestion that you are eating a varied diet that you know is not going to cause you GI distress because those folks, unfortunately, um, you know, can be prevented from being physically active because they're feeling so poorly. They, they don't want to yeah. go to the gym. You know, they're like, they feel bloated and they don't know if they're going to have to run to the restroom or something. And also they're having huge fluctuations potentially in body weight. And so they just can't get a good idea of what their actual energy balance needs are. So we address that first. And then once that's stabilized, then we move on to the weight modification phase. Um, and it, you know, it just makes so much sense, I think, to do it that way rather than what people are often trying to do is both of those things at the same time. And it's sort of like, you know, just throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks and they don't know what foods will actually upset them or not. And, and they just feel very disenfranchised often and anxious and, you know, it isolates them. They don't want to go out to eat because they don't know what might upset their stomach. And, you know, I think to some extent, unfortunately, dieting alone can become socially isolating if a person, um, you know, doesn't feel empowered with the ability to make choices in a social environment. So, yeah, absolutely. Like we, you know, not to say that the gut's not associated, um, but it's just if a person is not having any GI issues um, and then someone tells them on the Internet, like, oh, you can't lose weight because you have to fix your gut. All of a sudden, they have a problem that they didn't have before. <laughs> and it was probably really, <laughs> you know, they just had an issue with, like, tracking and energy expenditure. But now you're telling them that their gut is broken. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? You're seeing that so much now. And, like, I think it is so important to address everything as importance and not just kind of just pick one thing that's kind of trendy and just run with it. Like, last year, it was hormones. This uh -huh. year, it's gut health. And yeah. it's getting people to understand about these issues. And that's why I've got you on the show today to actually explain a little bit more about it, take the confusion away from people to ultimately, because I just want people to get themselves in a position to actually make change because for years, and I've said it before, and I said it on so many podcasts, a lot of people know what they need to do to lose weight. Mm -hmm. Actually, if we were to say to them, what do you need to do? They will turn around and say, I probably need to eat less calories. I will probably need to start exercising more. But with these issues in place, if people have got 
this bloating, they're constantly running to the toilet. These things are going to hinder people. So that's why it's so important to address them, to fix them for that matter, other than blaming gut health for not losing weight. Right, exactly. And, you know, be I think also being mindful about what claims we're making, because it's like, what does it mean to fix the gut? Or, you know, if people are trying to make claims about modifying specific uh, strains or species of bacteria, and it's like, we don't really know that we can do that. I mean, we can make really general um, recommendations about maybe an entire uh, phyla or genus of bacteria. So those are really broad brushstroke kind of huge groups of microorganisms it's not just you know we can say oh eat this one food and you'll increase this one bacteria um and i think that's where you know people kind of want to go to like i don't know sound sciencey maybe <laughs> you know yes. and, and sound convincing <laughs> yeah and people are so desperate for that change aren't they so uh -huh. people are, are so confused still and they still they may have been struggling to lose weight all their life they want to they want to kind of look for the solution or what they think's the solution. And all of a sudden now people are saying, oh, it's your gut, oh, it's your gut, do this, do that. And it's drawing probably people in who are confused about it to them, potentially to work with them as a business perspective to think that they've got the answer. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I've said this so many times that they want to sell you a problem so they'll buy your solution. <laughs> so true. And it's just draining people's money and confusing them. So. Um, one thing I want to just cover with you, Gabrielle, because this is something that I'm, I think is a really good one to talk about, is people are now linking depression with the gut. Mm. What do we know about what do we know about this? Because I've seen this a hell of a lot recently. People saying if you if you've got poor gut health, it leads to depression. What what is what do we actually know about this? Yeah, so there actually have been a few um, systematic reviews and meta-analyses that have come out really just in the past couple of years um, linking mute mood disorders, including depression, um, to uh, changes in the gut microbiome. Um, or I shouldn't say changes, just differences compared to individuals who don't have a mood disorder. The problem is that even in individuals who do have a mood disorder um, and are considered to have dysbiosis or an unfavorable relative abundance of microbes, that even in those individuals who share the mood disorder, their dysbiosis still looks different from one another. So we have so much individual variability that it's really difficult for us to actually identify which microbes could potentially be causative. We just see that, generally speaking, individuals who have a mood disorder tend to have fewer of some of the beneficial uh, species of bacteria and a little bit more of some of the mo more potentially pathogenic species of bacteria. Um, I say potentially because in, in most cases, we do harbor bacteria that are pathogenic or can, can cause disease, but they don't actually cause disease unless their numbers are high enough. Um, so it's normal to have them there. We just want them in lower numbers. So there is a link between the gut, so between the actual structures of the gut, and between the microbes in the gut and the brain the, and the central nervous system, so the brain, the spinal cord. We know that there is communication via the vagus nerve which is the prime nerve that runs our uh, rest and digest uh, aspect of that parasympathetic nervous system. 
So there is communication there. There may also be peripheral communication um, via compounds that the bacteria might make that could potentially enter the brain. Um, unfortunately, we don't have a great understanding of what's going on there. And some of the research and some of the mechanisms are a little bit conflated. So for example, um, serotonin was one that was really popular for a little while that a lot of people were saying, oh, 90% of the body's serotonin is made in the gut. Um, but the problem is that that's gut-derived serotonin, and it doesn't actually enter the brain. It doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. So just one example of where like, context and nuance are so important to actually comprehend what's going on, but it sounds way sexier to just take things out of context and make these bold claims. Yeah, I've seen a lot of men saying about the serotonin and, and the gut. <laughs> and oh, yeah. it's no wonder, pe no wonder people are so scared. Uh, so, so to, to summarise on that, there, there, there is a link there, but at, at the minute we don't know enough to say whether it cause, for instance, like a lot of people are making out. Right, exactly. And um, when we look at ways to modify, potentially modify the microbiome, you know, one of the most, I think, obvious was probiotic supplementation. Um, but the evidence for probiotic supplementation is weak and mixed when it comes to modifying mood, um, because mood disorders are so much more complex than just, you know, taking a pill. Um, and it looks like what's more effective are just the lifestyle interventions. So exercise and eating a nutritious diet, sleep and stress management, those go so much farther in modulating the symptoms of mood disorder. Could they potentially also impact the gut? Yes. Could that impact on the gut or the microbiome then have some sort of feedback mechanism onto the mood? Absolutely. It's a potential. But I think that the most obvious, probably, you know, causative factor um, or, or contributing factor is that, you know, when individuals invest in self-care, that's what really is going to have the biggest impact on a mood disorder. And I'm not a mood disorder expert. Um, don't claim to be. But, you know, when we look at, I think, taking things in context um, and looking at the actual data on the microbiome and mood disorders, that it really points to the, the need for lifestyle interventions over a probiotic or, you know, pointing at the gut as just the one thing, this one magic thing. Yeah. A little bit. I find it a little bit kind of ignorant when I see a lot of people saying this because it's coming from people who might not have these mood disorders. And, and okay. obviously there's a massive psychological component to this. Like you don't know what an individual has gone through to actually right. just point it to one thing. So it's a little bit, it is a little bit ignorant. And it, uh -huh. it is, again, go, going back to what we spoke about, it, it's like scaring people, isn't it? It's yep. making people have a problem that they didn't think was a problem and what yeah. that's actually doing is adding more problems to them already <laughs> oh yeah there's an issue i think right now with fear-based marketing with creating um and this this really does unite people i mean it's something that is used in the military in the u.s this is why you put people through boot camp and you have a drill sergeant that they, you can unite people against a common enemy and so when a, a coach or influencer unites people against something like um, glyphosate or birth control, you know, that then they and they can take um, research out of context 
and people don't really know better because they, you know, understandably, they're not in the field. They haven't done research. They can really capitalize on the fear that they manifest in people and then sell their, you know, whatever protocol or supplement line or whatever other stuff they're going to make way too much money off of. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of tests that are going oh. around. And, and, oh, yeah. and what, what really, really, really bugs me, uh, Gabrielle, in the, in the industry right now, you, you're seeing a lot of personal trainers telling people to go and take all these tests and you're like you're not even qualified to be saying that to people like what are you what the hell are you doing they should be investing the money in like what you spoke about before about lifestyle diet invest in the basics like you said they're not sexy and this is why it's I think it's so good to get someone like yourself on the show who's who's in this in this actual industry who who looks into the research in this particular topic and you've kind of come out with the basics for everyone, but again, the people still don't believe in them. And this is why I want to just really spread the message to people and get people on like yourself talking about this to actually look into what they should be doing, what's realistic for them, what they should be looking for to actually make a change rather than this skirmongering tactic that's going to not only confuse them more, but drain the bank account as well. Oh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the costs of some of these tests, you know, it's $300, $400. I've seen um, uh, coaches recommend like a series of tests that's thousands of dollars, you know, as an onboarding process. And, you know, I think a lot of it too, it comes down to, um, you know, the more a person uh, pays for something, the more invested they'll be. So you get a lot of buy-in when you charge someone, you know, huge amounts of money and you run all these tests and it makes it look like it's so, so thorough, but you're really just collecting a bunch of garbage data. Um, and, you know, yeah, the, the, you know, the, the gut map the, or the GI map tests, like those are kind of interesting, sort of like a 23 and me. But I think if most people went to a coach and the coach was like, you have to get a 23 and me before I'm going to work with you, they'd be like, that doesn't make any sense. Um, yeah. and, you know, and that's really the same thing. Um, so yeah, it's like, well, instead of spending the $400 on that test, that's not telling you anything, spend it on groceries or a massage or, you know, your <laughs> membership or comfortable shoes that you can work out in, you know, like invest that money in the things that are actually, that are, that are actionable because it's like, even if you get the data and I even say, you know, when people want to get like a DEXA scan, that is pretty you know that it's useful information in terms of like a snapshot um the dexa can be uh that accuracy is actually modified just by changes in diet and um and and body composition not the results obviously but the accuracy of the test itself so it's like even that you know it's cool it's really helpful but it's not all that necessary like you can take pictures you can get a general trend in body weight and you can um just go, you know, just focus on the process each day. And like, that's how you're going to be able to gauge success. You don't have to do a whole slew of $100 tests. Yeah, so many people are, are willing to drop all this money when for things that are, are not free, but it's the things that are free that really do help them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Doing all, doing all these tests and getting really paranoid about everything else, it just leads people to not take action on what's important. It makes them kind of, what's the, what's the phrase? Is it miss the forest for the trees? Yes, yeah, exactly. 
It, it really does. So I know that you've got a shoot now, Gabrielle. I know that you're really busy. Just to wrap this one, wrap this one up today, mm-hmm. we just have a little bit of a rundown of what do you think people need to kind of look for when it comes to just improving this gut health like we've spoken about. What, what are the basics? Just the last summary of it all and before we end the call. Yeah. So if you're having chronic GI distress, like you're constipated, you have diarrhea, you have painful gas and bloating all the time, absolutely visit your gastroenterologist and make sure that you don't have any sort of pathology going on. Once that's confirmed, either way, if you have a pathology, now you know you can act on that. If you don't have a pathology, that means that it's probably just something that you're eating. And so in that case, I recommend doing something like a systematic elimination and reintroduction diet. And the most evidence-based one for that would be the low FODMAP diet. So make sure that you're doing that with a professional who knows how to administer it properly. And then from there, you'll be empowered with the knowledge of the foods that cooperate with you and those that don't. And everything else comes down to the basics. So eating uh, plenty of plants, so that's fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, all of it. Add, add some of that or many, many of those things to every meal, even breakfast that we know we want to skip, you know, adding veggies to breakfast. Um, and then engage in physical activity on a regular basis, but not so much that you can't recover because that can be immunosuppressive. Um, find ways to manage stress and sleep because that will help you adhere to whatever, you know, um, overall healthy diet that you have chosen for yourself. And uh, spend time with loved ones. Um, you know, interesting stuff that we've seen in rodents is that when they're um, community housed with a really aggressive cage, uh, cage mate, that um, it does have an impact on gastric motility at the very least. So I would say, you know, try to avoid people who are upsetting to you if you can <laughs> or find ways to manage that. And um, yeah, just, you know, stick to the basics. Absolutely love it, Gabrielle. And yeah, no fancy heal you got no no talking about cleanses, detoxes, any gut health superfoods or anything like that. So I hope my listeners now will, they'll, I believe they'll take it more from yourself because like I said, I'm not an expert in this area. I believe like yourself, as much as you said, you're not an expert in it, you know a hell of a lot more than, you know, you're a hell of a lot more than me in the area and probably a lot of other professionals. So I don't think you give yourself enough credit there on such a complex topic, but I believe my listeners now will hopefully take something away because, you know, you are a doctor in this field and it's not just me relaying the basics and they're thinking, oh, what, Zeno is just a personal trainer. (laughs) But if they hired you, then they know that you know what you're talking about. Uh, Hopefully, I think so. Gabrielle, (laughs) I'm sure we could have chatted on more. and I hope to get you on again to cover more nutritional stuff because I know you have a hell of a lot more to offer than just talking about the gut. But honestly, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show today. Oh, thank you so much. It's been awesome. No worries. Take care, Gabrielle, and I'll speak to you soon. All right. Sounds good. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Fat Fix podcast, and I hope you all enjoyed today's show. If you have not already, please make sure you subscribe and you don't miss out on any future episodes. I also can't stress enough how much it means to me to those that have left me a star rating and written review on iTunes. This will ultimately help me reach more people like you and really help them too. So please give me two minutes of your time to do this if you haven't already. Lastly, any shares and mentions on social media is also massively appreciated. 
I will see you very soon for the next episode. Thank you very much.